Before we get started, we want to thank our Patreon supporters and remind everyone that as a nonprofit, we rely on your help to keep making Big Biology. To support us, please consider making a recurring donation at patreon.com slash bigbio, or instead consider making a one-time contribution at our website, bigbiology.org. You can also recommend Big Biology to a friend or a family member, or just share your thoughts about episodes on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. It also helps if you subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts and comment on and rate our show. And another announcement. We'll soon be recruiting interns for season five. Ta-da! If you're interested in helping us make Big Biology, contact us at info at bigbiology.org. There's a small stipend attached to the position, and as importantly, the chance to get heavily involved in all parts of production from script writing to social media outreach. And finally, if you like Big Biology, why not check out another interesting biology podcast, DNA Today. Does genetics fascinate you? Of course it does. You're listening to us, after all. Discover new advances, get it, DNA, in the world of genetics with DNA Today. This podcast explores genetic technology like home DNA kits, CRISPR, rare diseases, groundbreaking research, and more. For a decade, DNA Today has brought you the voices of genetic pioneers. There are over 175 episodes, so plenty to keep you entertained and updated about the latest genetic news. The show is a fan favorite winning the People's Choice Best Science and Medicine Podcast Award for the last two years. DNA Today is hosted by a genetics expert, Kira Deneen, who helps you understand genetic complexities. Learn more at dnapodcast.com and subscribe, rate, and review on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or wherever you're listening to this one. And now here's the show. Great fleas have little fleas upon their backs to bite them. And little fleas have lesser fleas, and so ad infinitum. And the great fleas themselves, in turn, have greater fleas to go on, while these again have greater still, and greater still, and so on. That's a poem written by Augustus de Morgan, who revised the original version written by Jonathan Swift. As we discussed in prior episodes with Rob Dunn and John McCutcheon, plus a few others tangentially, each and every creature on the planet has a microbiome living on and in it, a teeming rabble of fungi, bacteria, viruses, and even invertebrates. They range from neutral passengers to parasites to partners that provide essential services to their hosts. Those services include digesting food, synthesizing amino acids, even out competing or fighting off other harmful microbes. Microbiomes can even alter the choices that organisms make about what to eat. Our guest today, Corey Moreau, is an entomologist and evolutionary biologist at Cornell University, where she studies interactions between ants and other insects and their microbiomes. One thread of our conversation focuses on the roles that gut bacteria play in helping turtle ants form robust cuticles. Turns out that that cuticle is expensive to produce because it contains lots of proteins, crosslinkers, and chitin molecules, all built from expensive nitrogen-containing precursors. By themselves, ants would have a hard time acquiring enough nitrogen to make it all happen. Enter the gut microbiome. <laughs> Corey and her colleagues recently showed using some super clever experiments with isotopically labeled nitrogen that bacteria in the microbiome recycle urea, an insect waste product, into nitrogen-containing amino acids, which they then use to produce the components of cuticle. Thanks, bacteria. Corey and colleagues also work on Wolbachia, a group of bacteria that infects more than 65% of all insect species on the planet. Wolbachia live inside insect cells, and the key to their success is vertical transmission. They're passed from moms to offspring via mom's eggs. And that hands Wolbachia the evolutionary keys to distorting the entire process of insect reproduction. Think about it. 
from its perspective, Wolbachia should strongly prefer ending up in a daughter who can pass on the bacterial lineage to her own offspring than in a son who is a mouth-breathing dead end for the bacteria. In response, Wolbachia has evolved some pretty nasty tricks to boost its chances of ending up in a daughter and thereby spreading fast. Things like killing off infected males or turning them into females. Wolbachia can also produce a situation called cytoplasmic incompatibility, which works like this. Females infected with Wolbachia can produce viable offspring by mating with males that are either infected or uninfected. Just doesn't matter. But females uninfected with Wolbachia have to mate with uninfected males. If they mate with an infected male, they produce only non-viable offspring. It can be hard to visualize from Art's word salad, but the net effect is that infected females are more likely to find an appropriate mate and produce viable offspring meaning that Wolbachia can spread incredibly fast in populations. As Corey says, each insect is a walking Amazon rainforest. Amazement and wonder await. I'm Art Woods. And I'm Marty Martin. And this is Big Biology. Corey, thanks so much for joining us on Big Biology. Uh, super excited to talk to you about the diverse set of things that your group is doing on ants and insects more broadly and microbiomes. We've we've talked with a couple of prior guests about microbiomes. Um, we talked to Rob Dunn a couple of years ago and John McCutcheon. We had a live session with him here in Missoula in, in season one, which was was super fun. But maybe let's just start off. Maybe you can just tell us again, like what what are microbiomes and what makes them biologically interesting to study? I think for a long time we thought in biology that like an organism is the unit, right? So we would look at us and say, well, we're an individual. And so we can learn a lot about us by studying our genetics. And the same thing's true for almost any group of organisms. But what we're recognizing now is that each organism is in fact its own walking Amazon rainforest. There's not just the forest itself. There's all the things that live on it and in it that are like not just members, but they're contributing in functional ways. And so the microbiome is essentially the collection of all the microbial organisms that live in and on us or in any plants or ants. And it can be things like bacteria, it can be fungi, it can be viruses, right? It could be microbial eukaryotes. And so all these things are not only, you know, potentially pulling resources from us, they can be giving us resources, right? In beneficial ways or in harmful ways. And so we now know that the unit of study is sort of this composite organism and not just the you know one thing that we thought we thought about before. So if we turn that around, you think it's fair to say that is everything a walking Amazon rainforest? Or are there things that really do exist all by their lonely selves? <laughs> so sad. <laughs> yeah, that is sad. <laughs> I don't think anything exists entirely by itself, partially because you know we tend to talk about having a functional microbiome. And what that typically means is that there's some things inside of us that we can't live without, right? They're performing functions for us. So whether it's like degrading food and making it um, accessible in a way that our bodies maybe can't degrade ourselves or synthesizing a vitamin we can't get any other way. And so that's the functional microbiome that we need. But, you know, we also know that there's like a lot of transient stuff that may have no impact on us. And of course, then there's, of course, parasites, right? And that are making us sick or trying to extract resources to their gain at our loss. And so I think not everything has a functional microbiome. There's reasons to believe that if you have a really broad diet and a really broad distribution, maybe, you know, you're capturing enough of what you need in your own environment. But I guarantee you, they still have pathogens and they still have transient microbes passing through and on them. And so I do think that nobody's ever alone. 
what do you think about this word that, that's often associated with microbiomes? I don't know how long it's technically been around, but but it is becoming seemingly more and more popular. Holobiont. Is that is that a reasonable thing to use for these Amazonian rainforests? Sure. I think it is a, a useful thing to think about. You know, in biology, we like to have definable terms. And so the holobiont is sort of thinking about how all of these things are united as one and that they're all interacting with each other. And, you know, and that's the thing that, you know, we often sort of forget. So we're talking about human microbiomes. We often think about like what's making us sick and what's helping us, but we often forget that they're actually having interactions of their own as well. And that's playing out inside of our own organisms. And so I think the holobiont is a useful term. Another term that kind of goes hand in hand with it is this idea of the hologenome. We aren't really our own genome alone where, you know, we have all of these other genes and parts of their genomes and these other things, and that we should maybe think about that in a more integrated way. I think that one's been a little harder to get sort of foothold in our vernacular than, you know, the holobiont. But I really think that's just because it's a little, it's easier to know that something's present. It's harder to know if it's doing something. Yeah. I mean, that that seems to be, I think we're going to touch on that a lot in our conversation today. It's this issue of what we can measure, what we see versus the roles that they're playing, you know, what you're alluding to. Are they pathogens? Are they transients? Are they freeloaders? I mean, we don't really, with so much diversity, I mean, you know, we're talking about thousands, if not millions of different species. I don't know where in the world really to jump in. There's there's so many things that we could start, but uh, I'm going to selfishly start with, oh, I don't know, pathogens. Lots and lots of really cool stories there, but, but given what you've been working on, let's transform this into some details. Let's talk about one particular system, the turtle ants and the uh, what uh, pathogen is it that turns their abdomens red? Oh yeah, those are those are a group of nematodes that infect them. And so it's believed that the turtle ants are sort of the secondary host. So you know, a lot of these organisms that are parasites need to pass through a, you know, multiple hosts in order to go through the full reproductive cycle. And so the primary host is actually a bird of this nematode. And so it spends part of its life cycle where it reproduces inside the bird. Then, you know, some of the feces drop out, you know, something consumes the feces directly or something consumes something that's consumed the feces, which then has these essentially versions of eggs, these little cysts inside. They develop and then they go through their sort of maturing phase before they then have to con- complete the cycle by going through their primary host. So in the turtle ants, there's a nematode that needs to pass through an ant into a bird to start complete the cycle. And some birds eat ants, but you can imagine that you want to increase the probability, if you're the nematode, that they eat the ant that's holding you and not one of your sisters from the same nest. So the way they do that is they modify the anatomy or morphology of them and the behavior. So ants typically walk around with their their butts or their abdomens, gasters down. But in this case, it changes the behavior so they hold it up. But in addition, there's some sort of, and we don't exactly understand all the processes, but there's a chemical reaction that happens that turns the abdomen bright red instead of this sort of dark black brown. So now it's suddenly holding this, you know, globular red thing up high. And what do birds love to eat but berries? Tasty red berries. And so it looks like a tasty red berry. And so it makes them walk slower. It makes them hold their abdomens up and changes the color so that it is increases the probability that the nematode will end up in the primary host. I wanted to ask, sort of connect this back to one of the things you said maybe five minutes ago. So so are the nematodes themselves interacting with other aspects of the ant microbiome? Is that is that known? We wish we knew that very well, right? So we've just started to be able to understand a lot about the microbial eukaryotic diversity inside hosts. So we're much further along with things like bacteria 
a little further along with viruses, although we still know so little there. Now, recognizing that we probably have very diverse microbial eukaryotic communities. We usually only knew about them when somebody got sick, right? So you suddenly had some kind of a pathogen worm, right? And it's because that the tools to be able to detect bacteria are so much more um, easy because bacteria are so distantly related from us that we can design probes or primers so that we can go in and identify what's present, right? So it's essentially a discovery tool, but you can see the diversity. The problem with these microbial eukaryotes is we're eukaryotes too. So finding these markers that are unique to them but exclude hosts is actually quite difficult. Partnering with that, because we've been having, you know, departments of microbiology for so long that have been studying plating, you know, different groups of bacteria growing in them out, looking at functional assays between them, sequencing them, putting those on databases, we have a very robust database to be able to make comparisons with the microbial eukaryotes. It's far more depopulate. So we've actually done some of that work where we've tried to look at the microbial eukaryotes inside of these hosts by sequencing both the bacteria and the microbial eukaryotes to see if there's interactions. But what happens, unfortunately, is we identify most of our bacteria quite well. We have to then take all of our uh, microbial eukaryote data and subtract Hymenoptera from it, right? Because that's our ants which pulls out most of the data. Then what data we have back, we blast it against the databases. And what it says is, okay, it's not Hymenoptera, but 90% of your reads, all we can say is, yes, they're eukaryote. We can't, <laughs> we can't actually classify them any lower. And so That's it's- That's a swath of diversity. Yeah. <laughs> and it's because it's been harder to study these things. So. I mean, I think what's really interesting is as these databases build up, because people are getting more and more interested in these things, I want to take our old data and then blast it back again. And actually, maybe we'll uncover some new secrets that we weren't able to see before. Right. Um, we don't want to get too much into the, the, the technical details, but there was many things that you just said that I, I think are, are really intriguing. The one that you keep mentioning that's a new word for, for me and I think for art, too, is microbial eukaryote. We don't usually hear those words together, and now that you've given the explanation, I'm a little more comfortable with, with what it means, but what that we do know, not these big data sets that you're getting, or Gen, Gen Bank is saying, I'm not really sure what that is, but what are some examples of things that we do know that fit into that group? Right. So there's all kinds of entomopathogenic um, nematodes. So things, nematodes that make their living off of eating insects. We know there's lots of kinds of fungi that live inside of organisms, right? So I mean, we have lots of fungi that live in and on us, right? You know, that's what athlete's foot is. That's what ringworm is. And so there's all kinds of these things that we, you know, most fungi are not these beautiful mushrooms that we eat, right? Or observe in the forest. Most of them are these, you know, really microscopic things that are growing in and on decaying matter on organisms. And so, you know, there's all of these different lineages of fungi, nematodes, cestodes, you name it, living with us that we only now are beginning to discover. Okay, so tiny... Uh nucleated types of organisms of a, a broad diversity. I think one of my favorites that I think fits into that group is is the cordyceps fungi. Just keep going back to these horror stories. Oh, yes. I wanted to bring that up specifically because the interns that are working on our show are putting together, they're doing a project called Little Biology, and it's going to be an episode specifically focused on cordyceps. So you want to do a little bit of a teaser about what that is for people that don't know? Oh, my gosh. So it's no longer cordyceps. It's now been reclassified, those pesky taxonomists. It's <laughs> called orthiocordyceps. And so orthiocordyceps is a group of parasitic fungi that um, mostly infect arthropods. So there's some lineage that only infect spiders. There's some that only affect beetles. There's some that only infect ants. And it's usually a pretty close one-to-one -one relationship. So one species of fungus only can attack one host. But what's really cool about it is that 
in order for the fungus to get enough nutrition to then make the fruiting body, right? That's what the mushroom is, which is its mechanism for spreading spores. Um, it has to grow inside of its host. So it grows inside of its host and slowly, as it's getting larger and larger and it's getting ready to make its fruiting bodies, there's a, a switch. And what's really cool about the switch is it drastically alters the behavior of the host. So it turns a regular ant into a zombie ant or a regular, <laughs> you know, spider into a zombie spider. And why it does that is if it were to die deep inside the nest, the spores would never really make it out to infect, you know, new hosts. So it manipulates the behavior so that the ant leaves the nest, goes to a particular place within the forest and dies in a very, you know, stereotypical behavior. So in some species, they bite onto a twig. Sometimes they wrap their legs around the twig and then just hold on. And then soon the, the fungus kills them. Now, not only has it altered their behavior, so they've become zombies, but now the fungus will sprout out the back of the head and you'll see the stalk with the little mushroom that's now spraying those spores all over the forest floor so that they're more likely to infect another host and, and go through the cycle. That's so cool. All right, well, stay tuned for the little biology episode, which should be out relatively soon. Let me ask you another fungus related question, and that's sort of switching from thinking about fungi as parasites to thinking about them as partners in a nutritional quest. And that is leafcutter ants and, and fungus farming by, by leafcutter ants. I've always been super fascinated by that. And maybe just tell us how, how does that work? And you know, how do the ants and fungi together prevent, say, infections by other, other sorts of things? I guess other fungi and other bacteria that might like to invade these gardens. Yeah. It's just as sophisticated as our own agriculture, but it's been going on a lot longer. So what's really interesting is you have these ants that either only or primarily can consume fungus for their food source. So in order to do that, they need to grow their fungal farms. So typically with like a leaf cutter ant, you'll see these ants climbing up trees, using their mandibles to cut down little bits of leaf, and then they carry them over their heads like parasols, right? So you see these little like trails of beautiful leaves or flower bits walking through the forest. They take them into the nest and they actually can't consume the leaves. So what they do is they grind them into a mulch and embed it into their fungal garden. And then the garden actually uses that as its primary food. They then can harvest the mycelium or parts of the growing fungus as their food source. Now, what's really great about this is that the fungus growing ants have been cultivating their own food or harvesting and growing their own food for over 50 million years. I mean, we've only been doing it for about, what, 12,000 years? And so, I mean, they are way ahead of the curve. They're definitely among the world's first farmers. But as you sort of alluded to, it's not just them alone, right? Once you have this monotypic crop, you're going to have problems with pests coming in. And so there are actually fungi that want to parasitize the fungal gardens. There are bacteria that want to parasitize the fungal gardens. And so the ants have sort of reciprocated in this arms race by doing things like producing any microbial components but they can't do it themselves. So what they do is they grow bacteria on their bodies that excrete things that kill only the harmful pathogen in the nest and leave their food source untouched. And so you have this sort of like really complicated system where once you grow a monoculture, it's a wonderful place for pests and pathogens to sort of take advantage. So you're constantly ensuring that you don't have this runaway of loss of your entire crops. Awesome. That's such an amazing system. I wanted to ask about the interactions between ants and fungi in relation to what we talked about with, um, now I'm forgetting the, the genus of cordyceps. Orthiocordyceps. Orthiocordyceps, got it. So 
do, do the fungi have some way of getting the ants to disperse them in this fungus garden system? Or is it all vertical transmission? Yeah, it's vertical in the sense that a new queen, before she leaves the colony, she takes a little bit of the fungus and stores it in what's called her infrabucal pocket. It's kind of like a cheek pouch, but under her chin. And so if a queen were to leave the nest, even if she were to successfully mate and start a new colony, like dig into the earth, if she doesn't have that seed of the fungal garden, it's pretty impossible for her to inquire it from the environment. So in that sense, it's vertical, but it's like behaviorally vertically transmitted instead of like through the egg itself. Right, genetically. Yeah, super cool. So, so that implies, I think, that over deeper evolutionary time, there ought to be some correspondence between ant and fungal phylogenies. Is is there, there in fact that sort of matching or? It, there, there's a little controversy around some of this. So it, at first, when we looked at a really cursory broad scale, it was almost, it was 100% congruence, right? It's a beautiful story. But then once we started to dig in and get really down to like fine scale of all of the different species and strains, and you start to see that there's been a little bit of swapping here and there. There's been new acquisitions from the environment Environment. And so it's a, probably like everything in biology. It's not as clean as we'd like. It's a little messy, but that's actually where some of the fun comes in. When you mean swapping, is that within the same species of ants or I mean, how fine is this variation? I don't want to just get too much into the controversy, but how, how fine grained is that variation? Yeah, I'm not a fungal biologist, so I'm going to sort of defer, deflect that question and just say that there is probably some amount of like reacquisition from the environment independently. We know that that in fact is happening because there's two major lineages of fungi. So it's not just like one lineage that's always tracked the evolutionary history of the host. But then there's also likely some situations in which maybe a close enough related strain can swap some amount of genetic information with another. And so that's where it can get murky. Okay. Um, last sort of leaf cutter ant question. I, I did a lot of my PhD work in Panama. So I saw them all the time. And, you know, I, I won't go through all of the many questions that I have from that, from that period, but do we know why, or, or maybe I'm just, I have a misconception here. Or, or is this group of ants really a sort of an outlier among the insects in the farmers? I mean, is there something special about their history or the conditions and places where they've evolved that are conducive to farming? Why isn't this, or is this a more diverse behavior than at least I'm aware of? Yeah. I mean, in some senses, you're correct. There are other insect lineages that also farm, right? So there are some um, fungus-growing termites that also farm their own food. Uh, it's actually speculated they might have, be, have started doing it just before the ants, so they might be the world's first farmers. But then, of course, there are also all kinds of beetles that you know farm fungi inside of wood cavities. But it's not as common as you would imagine. And I think because for exactly the reasons we hinted at, like one, you have to sort of have all of these major transitions in both behavior, but also in diet to sort of have it happen. And now you're growing a monoculture, which leaves you susceptible to sort of, if you lose your crop that year, the colony dies, right? So again, it's sort of this precarious balance, just like us on earth, as to how long we're going to be able to be sustainable and do that. Mm -hmm. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Let's turn to a different group now. This is also one that we've talked a little bit on the show about, and it's Wolbachia, these super important bacteria that infect a really large fraction of the, the insects worldwide. So maybe just tell us about the basic biology of Wolbachia and 
maybe their distribution and importance in ants? Sure. So Wolbachia are a group of bacteria that are well known because they infect. They're probably the most infectious group of bacteria across insects and arthropods. Uh, some people have speculated that they infect about 35 to 65 percent of all arthropods on the planet, and that's huge amounts of infection. And typically, the reason we know about them is they have quite terrible, you know, they're very selfish as most pathogens are, um, but they'll manipulate the reproduction of the host to their own benefit. So they'll do things like male killing or male feminization. They make cytoplasmic incompatibility. So if a female is not infected, she can't mate with any, if she's infected, she can only mate with males that are also infected. So it sort of gets in this wonky situation where it can skew sex ratios to the benefit of the Wolbachia. And the reason it does that is Wolbachia can only be transmitted to the next generation through the egg. So if you suddenly have so many more more females, the probability of, you know, Wolbachia staying present within the population is really high. So that's what we kind of know about Wolbachia. But it turns out that Wolbachia infects a lot of things where it doesn't make sense for it to, to skew the reproduction. So anything that's haplodiploid, so the bees, wasps, and ants, their sex ratios are already skewed, not at the reproductive stage, but at the individual within a colony stage. So Ant colonies are primarily female, right? So every ant you've ever seen in your life is probably female unless it had wings. And then it's 50-50 whether it might be male or female. So essentially, if Wolbachia is getting into all of these females that are sterile, it has nowhere to go. And so interestingly, we've documented, um, both myself and my collaborators, large amounts of infection of Wolbachia across many, many ant groups. But in all situations that we know of, it doesn't seem to skew their reproduction or have any negative consequences that we can tell. And so it does beg the question sort of, you know, what, why infect all of these individuals if it's sort of just persisting? I mean, we can actually watch it transmit through the egg. We know that it's getting into the egg. We know that that egg is then maturing. And then the new female that's born is infected with Wolbachia. She's spreading it to all the individuals in her nest, but they're mostly sterile and female. So it's, it's a really puzzling story. It sounds like a system where it's not obligate that it's necessary, you know, the pathogen Wolbachia has to cause damage. So was there enough selection in the past that the Wolbachia, I mean, I'm making up a story here, but that the Wolbachia sort of decided evolutionarily to maybe not be as nasty as it would have been. It's everywhere. It's in everybody, but the ants don't care and the Wolbachia is still getting a free ride. You know, like you were talking about before, lots of transient microbes, lots of other microbes. We have no idea what they're doing. Is it possible that Wolbachia can be a bad guy and a good guy, depending on the host that it's infected? Absolutely. And it's probably neutral a lot of the times too, right? And so, you know, I think that, you know, that's in fact true of lots of microbes that, you know, we know infect us as their closest relatives, you know, in, depending on your immune system status, may not even bother you at all. So I want to, I would just go back to the, the, sort of general Wolbachia thing, because you said so many really cool things. I want to make sure we hit it. I mean, this is a parasite that drives out the males because its main or, or sole mode of transmission is through the egg vertically, right? So we get we get that male killing, we get that male feminization, and that cytoplasmic incompatibility, which our former producer of the show really wanted to do an entire episode just on that topic. And I think we even get, I think you write about induced parthenogenesis as well, too. Yes, absolutely. Yeah. It's amazing that this thing is, yeah. <laughs> it, sounds, it sounds also like, you know, we do this all the time, another horror movie waiting to be made or sci-fi movie <laughs> waiting to be made. Well, and in fact, a lot of the sci-fi movies are based on, you know, real biology. 
you know, there's a very popular video game that I've heard they're making into a movie called The Last of Us, and it's a zombie apocalypse. Oh, right. It's about cordyceps, And it's about right? or cordyceps, exactly. Yeah, my son loves that one. Yeah, yeah and yeah. so my colleague David Hughes actually um, at Penn State did the consulting on the movie or in the video game to ensure that it was pretty accurate. And I mean, nothing scarier in real life than real life. I mean, you know. <laughs> Whenever I talk about parasitoid wasps, you know, attacking insects, I always got to show a, a clip from Alien. I mean, it's just like, you know, the horror is out there. You just got to look Absolutely. for it. Absolutely. And I think that we have a really underappreciated understanding of parasitoids and, and parasites. Um, and so currently, like in insects, if you think about, you know, insects are the most diverse group of animals on the planet by orders of magnitude. But then even within the insects, like right now, beetles dominate having the most diversity. But it's already been speculated that if with enough careful taxonomic work and study of parasitoids and, and parasites, the hymenoptera and the flies are going to quickly outnumber any other group of organisms because, you know, everything has at least one pathogen and one parasite, and many have many. <laughs> and some of the parasitoids have parasitoids, right? So there's like multiple exactly. levels of That's these that's what things. I mean. So, everything has them. Oh, and where does it stop? <laughs> you guys sound like Jonathan Swift. <laughs> <laughs> But before we move on from Wolbachia, I want to just ask one one more thing about how Wolbachia manipulates behaviors in insects. And I, I know a little bit about this because I've worked some with uh, Brandon Cooper and uh, one of his current postdocs, Mike Haig, thinking about interactions between different Wolbachia lineages and different Drosophila lineages. And, and they've just been sort of interested in what Wolbachia does to the behavior and how. And I guess just mechanistically, it's always been a mystery to me, how could Wolbachia even affect behaviors? And so is anything known about those pipelines? Yeah. So I don't know about Wolbachia specifically manipulating behaviors. It wouldn't surprise me. I mean, because you have to keep in mind that any organism that's inside of our bodies, right, they're probably excreting small molecules, metabolites. Those metabolites travel through our system and have impacts in different ways, right? Sometimes it manifests as it gives us rashes everywhere, but in other times it may actually alter our behavior. There's a lot of question now, even within like human health, how much are we deciding like what we're craving that day versus <laughs> what our microbes are sending metabolites into our body, which then go into our brains and tell us like, no, you don't want that salad for lunch. You want that cheeseburger, right? And so, you know, it's a question of like, who's ultimately in control? And I think the same thing is probably true for Wolbachia. We have no reason to believe that they would not impact behavior, especially with they have this whole selfish component where most of them are trying to ensure that they're only landing in the female. So I, I don't know specifically, but you know, there are, there's a diversity of Wolbachia that you can be co-infected with multiple strains. And so is there some sort of dominance playing out between them within you? And how does that impact you? And oof. my microbiome is telling me right now to go get a pastry. It's just the oddest thing. <laughs> so, and I'm, I'm going to resist. <laughs> Good for you. Will of steel. Um, yeah, just one more Wolbachia thing. This really nice paper. I think Manuela de Romalo was the first author. I'm not sure I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, she was a grad student in my lab and is now as a postdoc. And she'll be starting her own faculty position this fall. Oh, cool. Congratulations to her. So one of the, the main findings that, that you came to, to, to roll back to this sort of Wolbachian social insects is a little bit weird. You do find correlations. You did find some relationship with biogeography and the difference between chosen solitary behavior. And in particular, some neat things going on with, with bees and wasps. So can you sort of summarize in this relatively quirky group with respect to Wolbachia, what were these patterns and what, how do you understand them to have evolved? So what's, I mean, insects are found all over the world. Ants are found all over the world. And Wolbachia is found all over the world. And so what we wanted to try to understand is 
how does it play out with eusocial or social and non-social species, but also where we find them on the planet? Um, there's a few interesting things. And one of the papers we published recently, we actually tried to understand the sort of biogeographic evolutionary history of the infection, which is not commonly done with bacteria. We often do it with organisms that are much more animal or plant-like, maybe some fungi. And so we wanted to understand sort of like, how did the the Wolbachia spread across the planet, right, within the hosts. And so using the host's biogeographic location as the proxy, we were able to show that there's been sort of like likely origin, and maybe it's difficult to say for sure where the origin is, but we see multiple invasions into things like the Neotropics or South America. Um, we have very little sampling actually from Africa and um, the only sampling we had currently was from Madagascar. And interestingly, the Malagasy Wolbachia are more closely related to ones in Asia, which, you know, maybe because of Pangaea makes sense. And so can we pull back sort of in deep evolutionary time? And then regarding the social versus non-social, I have to admit, I don't remember the details of that right this second. That's really terrible. I recognize. <laughs> no, no, no. That's <laughs> that's how it goes for me all the time, too. So what about the the solitary insects, though? I mean, the ones that are not social, but sort of within that that giant group, many of which are. I mean, is, is Wolbachia sort of behaving in those systems like you would see it in a lot of other insects? Yeah. And so for lots of organisms, even if they're not social, it's still a benefit to the Wolbachia to do things like male feminization, male killing, so on and so forth. We know a lot about this from, of course, work with Drosophila, which is not a social species. I mean, we can we can put them together in a tube, but they are just as happy being an individual than, you know, they don't need the sort of group setting. And so, you know, one of the questions we had early on is how easy it for Wolbachia to cross um, among interacting organisms. And so the system we were thinking of is that there's a lot of ants that tend butterfly larvae. And so what they'll do is they'll protect the larvae from parasitoids and predators. Um, and in return, the larvae gives them a droplet of honeydew. So could they transmit the Wolbachia through the honeydew? Maybe. But more likely than that, there's actually whole groups of butterflies that are involved in this symbiosis that have flipped the program and have become essentially predators of the ants. So they've moved inside the nest and they look like these hardened, weird little leathery things and they attack the ant larva and eat the ant larva. So there's a mechanism by which you might have an easier transmission of a group of parasites switching hosts. So we've gone in and done lots of sequencing to try to figure out, do we see any of these host shifts? And we haven't been able to detect them yet, but it doesn't mean it hasn't happened. What, what do you think about the the dirty needle hypothesis? So you know, generalist parasitoids sticking their, their ovipositor in something, picking up, Wolbachia and moving it to the next host. Is that a reasonable route of transmission, do you think? It could be, because we know that despite the fact that Wolbachia is more localized in the ovaries, we know that we can detect it in the hemolymph, right? So it could be a mechanism for doing that. We do know that, and, and this is true across anything, but the more distantly related something is, the harder the jump is. Uh, and so, you know, the question is, if they're feeding on very closely related things, maybe the probability of that jump to, of the pathogen into a new host is higher. Let's turn to another topic that you've also written about. So we weren't kidding up front when we said diverse set of topics. <laughs> I should have written about a lot fewer things. <laughs> yeah, I know, I know. <laughs> uh, and, and that's thinking about nutritional diversity and sort of the, the effects of the nutritional conundrums that various insect species face and the consequences for the microbiomes that they house. And I'm particularly interested in this idea that insects that eat Diets that are poor in some way, and many of these are herbivores in some ways, that they eat really crappy stuff like plant sap, often have mi microbial 
aspects to their microbiomes that help them make compounds that they can't get from their plants. So maybe give us an example of that and just talk about like how, how ubiquitous is this for insects eating crappy food? Yeah, it's a really great question. And I'm going to actually start by saying that when I started my career in biology, I love ants. That's like my thing. And I thought, why would anybody study bacteria or microbes in general? I was like, I can barely see my ants sometimes with my naked eye. Why would you go lower than that? Yeah, joke's on you, right? Yeah, right. But what happened was I got really interested in sort of how ants are interacting in the environment. We know they have symbiosis with lots of kinds of other organisms, with other animals, with fungi that we've talked about today. But they have a lot of sort of symbiotic relationships with plants. And we know that the ants went through major shifts in diversification when the flowering plant forests expanded across the globe. And it's not just that it gave them new niches, but also many other species, you know, diversified. So they had new, you know, food sources to eat of other animals. But we also see there that lots of ants transition onto plant-based diets. And so then I started thinking about, well, wow, so now you've transitioned on these plant-based diets. How are these ants getting enough nutrition? And that's what got me started thinking about why microbes are interesting. So to me, if you take a microbe and stuff it inside of an ant, it's the coolest thing ever. And now I'm obsessed. <laughs> you know, I often say that microbes are the little things that run the little things that run the world. And I really do think it's true. And so, you know, back to your question specifically is that we've seen the evolution of herbivory has happened independently across the ants many times. And if we look across insects, it's happened thousands, probably, you know, millions of times. And so how do you go from this generalized herbivore diet where you have species that are eating some animal matter, some plant matter, so they're getting all of their amino acids and their vitamins and minerals to now having a very specialized diet that to use your term is quite crappy. And how do you get enough nutrition? And so what we've seen in the ants is that we find convergence in those lineages that are becoming herbivorous, having communities of bacteria associated with their gut. So that's what got me really interested in it. Now, I've spent a lot of time dissecting open the gut compartments of ants to try to, you know, be able to, to document the diversity early on with my long-term collaborator, Jake Russell. That's really what we were doing is just documenting diversity. I, I joked that we felt like we were one of those early rainforest explorers just running to collect everything to send it back to the museum somewhere. <laughs> and that's because we didn't know a lot about it. So, you know, first we had to document that diversity. But the fact that we kept finding sort of convergence in the groups of bacteria, but also much higher loads of bacteria inside ants that were um, herbivores than in those generalists really made me start to think that there might be a functional role. So we've done a lot of work to try to tease that apart. We have a lot of indirect lines of evidence suggesting that they are. So ants that feed lower on the trophic scale are more likely to have microbes. But we've done direct lines of evidence. We've sequenced genomes of these bacteria and metagenomic communities of them to see what genes are present. And we can demonstrate that the bacteria have all of the genes necessary to synthesize the essential amino acids that the host is lacking from its diet. Now, that doesn't mean that the bacteria is giving them to the host, right? They might be synthesizing them as a common good to share with other bacteria in the community. So we've now been able to demonstrate that not only is it they're being synthesized inside the gut by the bacteria, that we can actually trace those amino acids and find them within the hemolymph of the host. Um, and I'll say what I love about science in general and biology for sure is every time you answer one question, it just opens up so many more questions. I've never been at the end of a study and felt like, okay, bow on the top, done. Let's move into a new field or a new group of organisms. Like I have never once, you know, exhausted all my questions. So in the process of dissecting open all of those tiny little abdomens of ants. I hadn't intentionally decided to measure this. And I can't tell you at what moment it kind of occurred to me, but I started to realize that as I was dissecting open all these guts, the ants with the toughest cuticle to break through 
were either predatory or were herbivores and we knew they had gut bacteria. So I thought, huh, that to me suggests that in order to produce this really thick cuticle, tough cuticle, you need to have a lot of amino acids, nitrogen present in your diet to invest it in that cuticle. So could the bacteria contribute directly to the cuticle? And so that was a project I set out to try to tackle that question with some chemists so that we could actually track where those isotopes were sort of landing within the organism. Yeah, that was the paper by Duplay et al., Nature Communications. Yeah, so that was another one that Art and I read, and I, I'm just fascinated by that. And generally, I had a PhD student in my lab do that sort of uh, tracking in the past. Can you explain how you did that work to really nail that this nitrogen was sort of coming from the bacteria and getting into the cuticle? For sure. So the first thing we did is we went and collected a whole bunch of these ants, my favorite ant in the world. It's called the Florida turtle ant, Cephalodes varians. Collected a bunch of those colonies and we split the colonies in two so that, you know, there's lots of workers in the colony so that we could control for sort of genetic background. And then we had multiple of these colonies that are, you know, experimentally manipulated. And in half, we gave them antibiotics to knock out or down their bacterial communities and half we did not. Then we introduced a label isotope into their diet so that we could actually track where things go. Now, because we wanted to know, did the bacteria produce something that was then getting integrated in the cuticle, we couldn't use any of the workers that were already um, at the adult stage. So we painted all the adults so we knew that they were already present, so they weren't enriching their diets, right? And then we went in and actually let those larvae fully develop, go through pupation, and emerge as adults. So now we have them, they should, if, if the bacteria are in fact contributing, that marker will have been deposited into the cuticle and we can track that. So then now comes the fun part, which is we did two different things. One of which we wanted to ensure that we had not sort of messed up the system. So we looked at the amount of the um, amino acid in the gut to know that the bacteria actually produced it. We saw that it was far more enriched, especially in tyrosine and phenylalanine within the gut, which is the precursor to synthesizing most of the essential amino acids. And showed it's really high in the guts where we didn't use antibiotics and very depopulate without. Great, our experiment's working. Well, now, is it getting integrated in the cuticle? So here we had to scrape out the insides of all, like, you know, dozens and dozens of ants, then take just the cuticle itself, grind it up, and then um, submit that for analysis by NMR. And so NMR is just an analytical chemistry techniques that allows you to trace a single isotope within a sample. And what we were able to show is that we, when you look at the compound of the cuticle, the cuticle is made of chitin, maybe not a surprise, but within the chitin, there's embedded proteins. And in order for those proteins to attach to the chitin, they each have to have sort of a connector um, that's required. So it's a linker that lets them join. So they can't just join without the linker. So then there's two linkers linkers in those. So we could actually demonstrate that the isotopes, the, you know, in this case, the enriched uh, compounds were significantly higher when we left the bacterial communities intact than without. And specifically, we showed that they, the bacteria contributed to the chitin, to the protein, and to the linkers. But what was really cool is the only other studies that had done this kind of work before in insects had been in two species of beetles. And in both of those beetle species, what they see is an additional thing. And so before I tell you about that, I just want to remind you that to get a tough cuticle, you go through what's called the tanning process. And the tanning process starts with that phenylalanine or tyrosine, and then it goes down one of two pathways. That's either the melanization or the sclerotization pathway. Melanization is what adds pigment. It's probably what allows you to have a large amount of immunity, where the sclerotization is what makes you sort of hard or tough or thick. And so 
In the beetles, both pathways are impacted and the beetles turn out this really pale white, you know, kind of yellowish color when you give them antibiotics. In our turtle ants, we knew this because we've been giving them antibiotics for, you know, dozens of years trying to figure all this stuff out. It never changes the color. So somehow the bacteria are not contributing to the melanization pathway, only to the sclerotization pathway. Wow, that's super cool. Wow. That's super neat. So, so, so let me ask a question that, I don't know, this, this may not make sense, but are the bacteria giving these compounds, giving these amino acids to the ants or are the ants taking them sort of forcibly? And, and maybe, maybe that's not, it doesn't even make sense because, in a, you know, their interests are aligned largely, I, I think. Yeah. I mean, the story is so interesting. So of course, you know, this is why, like, sometimes I feel like you're playing with Russian dolls. Like you're like, I got it. And then you open one more and you're like, wait, there's more in there. <laughs> and so in many of these sort of obligate host microbe interactions, there's one host, there's one microbe, and they're in a very tight evolutionary relationship. Within the turtle ants, we have a host, but within the gut community, we have multiple members of that community. And they're not in a specialized cell. They're just living within the gut. We do know that they're partitioning the gut itself so that there's some that are only found in the mid-gut and some that are only found in the ileum. But even within that, the sort of next thing I want to sort of get into is how are they structuring even that fine scale? Because I imagine it's not a homogenous mix. Like everybody's fighting for the prime spot. And so the question is, not just whether they're giving these nutrients to each other, but what's the warfare happening between them? So we know from sequencing those genomes and metagenomes of the bacteria that when we look at the gene composition, we're often looking at for these nutritional components, but we also know that bacteria have the capacity to produce biosynthetic gene clusters. So these are parts of the genome that are conserved so they can essentially create antibiotics so they can fight with other bacteria or exclude other bacteria. Interestingly, when bacteria become obligate symbionts of species, they start shrinking their genome quickly. They throw out anything they don't need. So if you don't need to live and have a free lifestyle, you get rid of any of the genes for producing things that you don't need to produce. And within our turtle ant system, there's only one group of bacteria that's found within the midgut. So it has no competition where the others are all found in the ileum. And when we look for the presence of the biosynthetic gene clusters, the one that's living in the midguts lost them all. There's no competition, but the ones that are in the ileum have retained them. So that's why I wonder sort of there's some battle about who's sort of competing with who for the prime spots within the gut. And so the question about whether their evolutionary interests are totally aligned, maybe at the scale of ant and the microbial community writ large it is, but then of course there's still competition among the bacteria within the gut. It's still an Amazon rainforest in there, Exactly, right? so. exactly. There's also probably a lot of beneficial interactions as well. Like, you know, I'll synthesize this if you synthesize that, right? Because they are losing a lot of their genome. But I think it's really interesting to sort of think about how it plays out at these multiple scales. That's the thing that, to me, in the, in the world of the microbiome, that's both so tantalizing and so terrifying that we're learning how much diversity is there. And we, I mean, just as you've articulated, we've just scratched the surface about the crazy complex relationships that are likely to be there. So this or, you know, the epiphany that, my goodness, there's all of this diversity we didn't really recognize. We're only just starting to get into the functional diversity and man, how that's going to change everything. So can you, um, just one other question before we sort of zoom out and talk a little bit of, of social media, although our, I think Art maybe have, has more one more follow-up. A few minutes ago, you said something about the sort of just huge amounts of bacteria 
in the guts of the herbivorous ants. What fraction of body mass are we talking about? Have you ever estimated that? I mean, are the microbes like some crazy amount that there's a physical influence on the, the ants moving around? Yeah, I have not. I mean, the one thing we know is that microbial cells are smaller than eukaryotic cells. So we haven't done it for ants, but I think for humans, you know, we say that they, by numbers, the number of bacterial cells to human cells is significantly higher bacterial cells. But then if you sort of put them all together, it probably only weighs about five to seven pounds within our body. So thinking about our ant systems, I would imagine it's probably somewhere on the same scale. And what I think is also really cool, so we spent a lot of time talking about herbivores, but one of the patterns we see is if sort of plot the trophic ecology. So some ants are predators, right? And some are herbivores. And then we have things that are generalists in between. And if we look at the density of bacteria across their guts, things that are herbivores have huge amounts of bacteria in their guts. When we get to herbivores, it gets pretty low because they're probably getting enough in their diet. And then we see a blip up again in the things that are entirely predatory. Now, what they're doing is probably quite different, um, but it, what's intriguing and the reason I get so excited about this is it's not just that we see an uptick, but these are ants that are often unrelated to each other and they're landing on the same groups of bacteria over and over again. So there must be a functional role there. We have not teased it apart yet, but if I had to speculate, it's some kind of amine, it's some kind of vitamin synthesis that's missing from their diets. So in other words, like they're they're all eating meat in various ways and they're just not getting something from that meat that they would get from a more generalized diet. And so they too have assumed a new community of microbes. Yeah, super cool. Can can I I mean have has anybody considered have you considered the possibility that eating meat disposes you to getting infected by whatever infected your prey that so maybe some of the microbes they have is another way that you know insects are supposed to have pretty poor immune systems which I've always been skeptical about but maybe they're using microbes as stand-ins for an immune system if you're eating mostly other animals. It certainly could be the case. I mean, we haven't done those experiments yet to look at whether they're synthesizing, you know, um, antimicrobials, right, that could be helping the host. And that sure is one way that they could potentially be benefiting the host. What's interesting is that we see convergence in the bacterial groups. Uh, I mean, these predators, regardless of where you find these predators on the globe and how distant evolutionarily they are. So, you know, maybe it is in fact immune system protection against, you know, eating other animals. And especially because there's whole lineages of army ants that just eat other ants, right? And so, you know, there's an even higher probability of jumping between hosts. That's a great idea. I haven't thought of that. I'll, I'll definitely have to puzzle about it. Nice. New science happening right here. <laughs> I, I had just one last question about this nutritional thing, which is just incredibly fascinating. So I was wondering about evolutionary shifts in the morphology and physiology of the guts of the herbivorous ants. So do they have to evolve some set of traits that facilitates the colonization? Or is it simply the fact of eating eating lots of leaves? I love this question. <laughs> oh my gosh. I love this question because it's a, something I've wanted to do for a very long time. It's a lot of work and I've not been able to convince anyone of any of my students to do it yet. But just sort of antidotally from cutting open lots of abdomens, and there's been a little description work of like what the digestive tract looks like for many groups of, of ants. It's just like we see in things that eat primarily grass and, you know, plant-based material. Yeah, we see in at least the herbivores. So I told you before, we have the midgut, the ileum, and the rectum. So the ileum and rectum are sort of like our large and small intestines. And in the ants, 
the ileum gets super long and curvy and lots of surface area in all the herbivores compared to the generalists and the predators. You know, and the question is there, is it that it gives more space for all the bacteria to grow that they need, or is it just needs more time for digestion of the food sources down that sort of part of the digestive tract? So I would love to know um, if any of your listeners out there really want to get nerdy and do nothing but <laughs> measure tons of ant guts, <laughs> tell them to come talk to me. Oh, your <laughs> inbox is going to be flooded. Yes. <laughs> Sounds heavenly to me. I, I'm about to volunteer right now. <laughs> okay, so um, one one last sort of transitional question into all the the huge amounts of times you've put into science communications and such. What else do you think is coming, or what's coming next for insect microbiomes? You know, it sounds like you're the field's moving beyond the stage of describing what's there and getting into, you know, the deposition of nitrogen and cuticles and that kind of thing. What do you see on the horizon? What are you excited oh, about? Goodness gracious. There's like a, so many things I'm excited about. You know, what I think I'm most excited about, and not just the microbiome, but in like genetics and genomics more generally, is that you don't have to work only on model systems anymore to be able to address these kinds of questions. And I've been thinking a lot about how we often think about the evolution of traits and we'll think of them one at a time, right? So we'll say, okay, we see the spine arise or we see them transition to a new diet or something. But I want to start thinking about the integration of the these traits and how we can really study them. So there's lots of organisms where we know that they've shifted their anatomy, but in order for that to be successful, they had to shift their behavior at the same time. So like the classic example to me are things like leaf insects. So they look like a leaf. They look, they're a little dead around the edges. They have mold growing on them. Talk about natural selection, really refining what they look like. They never look like juicy, fresh leaves because then they would inadvertently get eaten by an herbivore, right? They have to look like the tattered, crumbly, you know, sick infected leaves that nobody eats. But now if you look like this, but you walk like an insect, a predator who's watching the landscape knows you're not a leaf, you're an insect. So leaf insects don't just walk normally. They kind of always do this and, you know, rustle in the wind. So there you have to have linking of an anatomical trait with a behavioral trait in order for this organism to last on an evolutionary timescale. That's just one example. We can think of host microbe interactions as well. But do we see linking of these traits in parts of the genome? Like to have a modification in the gut and have be able to have a relationship with bacteria, those are two changes at once. But they had to happen at once. So how was that sort of happening? And I love to think about the complexity of these traits and how it plays out on evolutionary times. And I think that's the sort of new thing I'm getting excited about because model systems are amazing for lots of reasons. But if you look outside in the natural world, like there's so many questions to be addressed. And that now we have the tools to be able to do it outside of model systems. I think the, the new things we find are just gonna blow our minds. Well, Corey, this has been a super fun talk about the science itself. Let's talk about one other thing that you're really deeply into, and that's just SciComm. So communicating science to the public and being active on social media and just reaching out. And, and this is such an interesting space, right? And I think a lot of biologists are aware that many of us need to do a better job of this. Of the people we've talked to recently, I'd say you're just like right up there close to number one, if not number one, in terms of like overall activity and activity on the podcasts and just, just really impressive. So, so I guess may, maybe tell us, like, how do you see the role of scientists and what needs to happen as we're interfacing with the public 
and you know what kinds of things do we need to communicate and how do we need to be communicating them yeah that is a great question i think for me because i didn't come from an academic background my parents are not scientists my parents didn't go to college uh, i actually remember the moment when i figured out i had to figure out how to communicate science better and that was i had a big paper coming out in grad school right before the holidays and i told my dad about it but i went home to visit and you know he always hangs out with his buddies he goes to his local bar like on every thursday and I, i'll go with him whenever i'm in town and i got there and they were like Corey, your dad says you have a big paper coming out. What's it about? And I started talking and I could just see their eyes glaze over and I couldn't rescue it. And they all are so polite that they would, of course, not tell me. They have no idea what I'm talking about. And I decided that moment I had to figure out how to explain complex things to my dad's friends, to my family, to my friends that are not scientists. So I've worked really hard at it. But I think also for me, part of what made that so important was, you know, I didn't know any scientists growing up. I barely knew anybody who had a college degree. And so what got me so so excited about science was PBS. I watched every nature show on PBS. I mean, I'm old enough that there was no Discovery Channel or Animal Planet when I was a kid. It was PBS, right? And so I just sort of was in awe. Like I thought every scientist could speak that way about their work and that they were all so sophisticated and, you know, worldly. And I wanted to be that, right? And so I sort of think now that in my role as a scientist is to to inspire that next generation, to ensure that people think that science is something that they can understand. I think that's where we get a lot of this science hesitancy now or disbelief, um, but also that, because I mean, they want to be made to feel that they're smart enough to understand, but it's okay if you use a little jargon. They also would need to know that you're an expert, but you have to make it accessible. You have to draw people in. And for me, I mean, you know, I know people who do SciComm in one specific way and they're amazing at it. You guys are an example here, right? You host this podcast. I like to diversify my science communication and do it in many ways. And so, of course, there's things like being on podcasts and, you know, social media itself. But I'm a huge fan of museums and natural history collections. And so anytime I can have a venue to get my stuff out on a museum floor, I'm absolutely thrilled and excited to do so. And in fact, we just opened an exhibit at the Museum of the Earth here in Ithaca. If you'd like to come see it, we have over a thousand specimens on loan from the Cornell University Insect Collection on display so you can see the real thing. But I think it's really important for people to have that experience where they can connect with the material, but they can also be a little blown away that it's outside of what they know. So for, for students and, and probably professors trying to get into this world, what would be your number one piece of advice about how to communicate this complexity to you know your, your dad or your dad's group of friends? What's the approach that you try to take? I think think about your words a lot. You know, I I've, I mean, I'm still learning. Actually, just a few years ago, I was um, filming something and I was sharing something I was very excited about. And then the person said, pause, what's morphology? And I was like, <laughs> oh, great. Yeah, of course. Like, and then I was like, oh, anatomy, does that work? And they're like, yes. Yeah. So now I'm like, I never talk about anatomy of ants, but I talk about the morphology. But I, when I talk to people, I have to learn to turn on that part of my brain that uses more accessible words. I guess the one piece of advice I would say is, in my opinion, and I'm that's just my opinion. There's really two obvious pathways to get into science communication if that's what you want to do. One of which is to become a true science communicator that that's your actual occupation, right? And to do that, you can do it one of two ways. You can become a, you can have a science background and become good at communicating, or you can take a communications background and learn a lot of science so that you can interact with scientists to pull that information out. The other is the path that I took where I'm a scientist that likes to communicate my science and other people's science. 
most of the students I meet are actually much more interested in this path. And the first piece of advice I give them is you have to actually do the science first. They often want to skip that step and just talk about it, right? Mm -hmm, but you actually mm -hmm. have to have some results to communicate because you're going to be the most qualified to share your work with the public than anybody else. And so if you can sort of have done the work and then get excited about it, it's, it's guaranteed to be infectious. This is super interesting in relation to just us doing this podcast. We've, we've talked a lot about word choices and how we talk about subjects. And I think there's always this tension between wanting to de-jargonify and talk in more normal language. But we also want to have, you know, just excited, nerdy conversations with other biologists, just like we'd have at a, a scientific conference. And so there's some kind of path in between those. And it depends somewhat on the personality of the guest and how much coffee Marty's had and that, that kind of thing. Um, <laughs> But it's just it's just hard to to control that in the moment, but it seems vastly important. Absolutely. And I think another axis of it that we're starting to see is that we want science communicators and scientists to show up that look like the diversity of the population of the world and speak the way that the world does and get excited about things in their own way and share that enthusiasm. And so I think there's a whole suite of people that are just on the cusp of breaking it big and sort of taking over as science communicators that are just going to open our eyes to how science has communicated itself. Um, there's a whole bunch of stars on Twitter and, and one of my sort of favorites, of course, is Shane Campbell Staten, who's in the midst of filming some you know, new television series so that we'll have a window into how he thinks about the world. And so I'm really excited for that kind of work. Yeah, that's super great. Well, good. Hey, thank you so much for the conversation, the far ranging conversation <laughs> that we've uh, we've put you through. Last question. Has there been anything that we haven't given you a chance to talk about? Anything else you want to say? Psycom, ants, microbiomes, zombies. Oh gosh. I think the one thing I'd say is that I think people underestimate the importance of being an ally in diversifying STEM, so science, technology, engineering, and mathematics. Um, we often look to affinity groups to do the work. But if we don't have the allies there doing the work too, we're not going to see the, the face of science change. And so I'm going to ask all of your listeners to figure out how they can actually contribute to meaningful change, even if they don't share that identity to make sure that STEM looks like all of us. Yeah. Yeah. Brilliant. Excellent. Well, thank you so much, Corey. We really appreciate it. It's been my pleasure. I'm excited. Thanks so much for having me. And I may well sign up for this ant gut morphology <laughs> project. So, you know, let, let me know when you're taking applications. All right. Uh, just as long as you have steady hands. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I do. I do. Brain, a brain surgeon among ant biologists. Yeah. <laughs> Love it. <laughs> Thanks for listening to this episode. If you like what you hear, let us know via Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, TikTok, or give a review on Apple Podcasts. And if you don't, we'd love to know that too. All feedback is good feedback. On the next episode, we talk with Van Savage, a professor at UCLA, about branching in biology. Van studies how water and other materials move through bodies, and his work is showing that the same basic branching rules seem to apply to all life, from unicellular species to dogs to giant sequoias. Thanks to Ruth Dimry and Brad Van Paraden for producing the episode, and to Steve Lane, who manages the website. Thanks also to interns Jordan Greer, R.B. Smith, Natasha Damright, and Kyle Smith, who help with social media and script writing and editing. Keating Shimeri produces our amazing cover art. Thanks to the College of Public Health at the University of South Florida, the College of Humanities, and Sciences at the University of Montana and the National Science Foundation for support. Music on the episode is from Poddington Bear and Tieran Costello. 